0: Well, good morning. If I can invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Philippians chapter number two, please. The second chapter in the book of Philippians is where we're going to be. And of course, we're journeying through this book together on Sunday mornings. The book of Philippians began at the first of the year. And today we'll finish up chapter number two, halfway through. And this study's been a help to me. I hope it's been a help and a blessing to you as well. I do realize and acknowledge the task that is before me, and that is preaching uh, on Sunday morning of time change, in which we turned our clocks ahead uh, one hour, and uh, I can tell already as I look around the room that it got some some folks uh, who would normally be here. Who would, they're going to show up here in about thirty-five minutes or so, and uh, they'll catch about the last five minutes of the message, and uh, we'll welcome them, and we'll just pretend like you know we didn't we didn't realize what had happened. Uh, we had that happen of the 9.30 service as well, and uh, no doubt it's going to happen again today, but uh, we're, uh, we're honored and delighted uh, that you're here with us, and I'll do my best to preach, and uh, you do your best to stay awake, and that'll be great. I do want to take uh, an opportunity, I hope I don't want to embarrass him, but I want to welcome a very special guest. Winnie, where are you at? Would you stand for just a minute? And Winnie used to come here years and years ago, went to our Christian school, and I bet it's been 30 years since we've seen one another, and he came in this morning. What a treat that is to have him. Let's welcome Winnie to our service this morning and thank him for visiting with us. Some of you, some of you remember him. You go back that far, and I hope that you'll go by after the service and say hello to him. What a... Dear, sweet man he is, and we're grateful and blessed to have him with us in the service, and to thanks Dan and Holly for bringing him. What a, what a treat that is for us. We're certainly uh, delighted to welcome all of you here today. Well, we're in Philippians chapter number two. We're going to begin reading in verse number 19, and we'll read down through verse number 30, which again will take us to the end of this particular chapter, and again, hope that um, again, this will be a help to us this morning as we study it, the Bible says in verse number 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus, or Timothy, shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with a father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently so soon as... I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I send him, therefore, the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me." For those of you that were here this last Sunday, a week ago today, you may remember that we we emphasized, uh, prior to the passage we've read this morning, the verses seem to emphasize the idea of believers shining brightly in this dark world. The Bible says in verse number 15 that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So, I was preparing that message last Sunday, and or preparing it for last Sunday. I had in my mind, I believe that what Paul is doing in verses 19 to 30, I believe he is sort of giving us a real life picture, a real life example of some believers who actually shined as he was urging the church at Philippi to do. Their names are Timothy and Epaphroditus. So to be very frank and to be very honest with you, this message is, is sort of a continuation of what we looked at last week. Last week was sort of the teaching. Here's what I would have you to be and here's what I'd have you to do. And then this week is sort of the, the, the example in, in, in color, right? In high definition. Here's what it looks like. Here are some men who are exactly what I'm urging you and telling you to be. And so with God's help this morning, I'd like to preach to you a message I've entitled, The People God Uses. The People God Uses. Father, would you do a work in our hearts and lives here together today? Lord, thank you for what you did here in the earlier hour at 9.30 with those that gathered with us. We pray, Lord, that as we enter now into this service, into this hour, that you would work similarly, Lord, that you would... Uh, Lord, do something in us that is something that only you can do. We're asking that if there's someone here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that they'd be saved. If there's someone here today that knows Christ, but they are not really in a position where God can use them because of lifestyle, because of habits, and because some of these things, we're asking, Lord, that you would transform them, not, not by my word, but by your word. Uh, Lord, we give this service over to you. We acknowledge, uh, Lord, We acknowledge our complete and total dependence upon thee. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, God's work in this world really is a a work that is among and about people. God uses to minister to people and to accomplish a task in people, he uses things like events, things, circumstances, difficulties, trials, the list could go on and on, But, but make no mistake about it, his heart and his work are about people. You understand that God's ultimate work in drawing people to himself was when his son, Jesus, became a man. Jesus became a man and he came and he dwelt among people here on this earth to live among them and to minister to them. His, his word, this book that we hold in our laps, it's a book that was penned, humanly it was penned by people for the purpose that people might read it and might be impacted by what is found here. His church is full of people. And did you know that heaven right now is being prepared for people who have been redeemed or transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ? I share all that with you to encourage you and encourage me and encourage our church that may we never, may we never grow weary of people. May we never grow tired of people. May we never grow frustrated with people. Because listen, the heart of God is a heart for people. You know, the epistles of Paul, all of them are are extremely relational. I think that further underscores God's heart for people because all, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Paul's epistles are written to different groups. They're written specifically to churches that were full of people. I'm thinking of the church at Corinth. He wrote two letters to them, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I'm thinking of the church at Ephesians, Ephesus I should say. He wrote a letter to them. We call that book the book of Ephesians. Several other churches that he writes specifically to all of the saints or to all of the people that make up that particular congregation. I'm thinking to myself that some of his books are written to regions, groups of people that are scattered maybe in those regions. I'm thinking of the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews, not necessarily written to a specific church, but written to all of the people that know the name of Christ in that particular region. And then you know as well as I do that there are certain books that are written to specific individuals or people. Books like Titus and Timothy and Philemon, all of them are written not to a specific church or to a specific region, but to a specific individual, a specific person. Did you know that in nearly all of Paul's letters, in nearly all of them, you study it, you read it, and you'll discover that he greets people. He mentions people by name. He talks about certain people and makes comments on what they meant to him and and, and the work that they uh, were accomplishing uh, in him and, and, and through him and to be a blessing to him. Did you know that Paul, the apostle Paul, never, never did his work without a team of people? On his first missionary journey, Paul took two men with him, as far as we know. Might have been more, but we know there were at least these two men, Barnabas and a man by the name of John Mark. Of course you know that John Mark didn't complete that first missionary journey that he abandoned them but, but 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 Paul took people with him on his first missionary journey on his second and third missionary journeys he took a man by the name of Silas with him And along the way, they would pick up Timothy, this man that's mentioned in the early part of our text as well as a man by the name of Luke. And perhaps there were others that would have journeyed and traveled with them and would have made or formed the team that Paul had. So think about this for just a moment. Paul was a great man, perhaps one of the greatest men that ever lived, and yet Paul, the apostle Paul, always, always surrounded himself with other people and allowed other people to be part of his team in reaching, get this, in reaching people so you see that it's the work of god the work of god is a work of people you know every once in a while i'll meet a i'll meet a pastor and he'll be introducing himself to me and he'll say something like this you know i'm not really a people person and I'm thinking to myself, well, then you need to find another job. <laughs> you need to go do something else because the work of God is a work about people. You may be a servant here in this church. Don't you dare, don't you dare let me hear you describe yourself as not a people person if you're a servant of the Lord here in this church. Why? Because this church exists. We, 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 we are, we're here specifically for the purpose of ministering, of meeting the needs of people. That's the work of God. Now, in our text, we're told of two people who meant a great deal to Paul, especially during his time of being imprisoned, as we understand the book of the Philippians, is a prison epistle. It was written while Paul was in prison. But these two men, they also meant a great deal to the church at Philippi as well, and I believe that's why they're mentioned here. One of them was a native of this particular city, and, and it actually had actually uh, come from this church we're going to discover that in just a moment to accomplish a specific task. He was sent sort of as an ambassador on their behalf. The other man was not a native of Philippi, was not a member of this church, but because of his assistance to Paul and the work that was uh, going on among them in Acts chapter number 16, we discover that he meant a great deal to this church as well. And, And Paul highlights really several things about both of these people in our text. We find some pretty impressive qualities that we're going to kind of sum up here in just a moment, but let me share them with you. Uh, Paul says about Timothy that he was like-minded. In other words, he thought like Paul, and he, uh, he, he had a passion, a heart like Paul had. We see that in verse number 20 of our text. We discover that he was compassionate, uh, that he had a heart for others and caring for others in verse number 20. Uh, we discover in our text that he was selfless. He, he was not about padding his own pocket and meeting his own needs, but rather he 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 was about following the Lord and doing what was pleasing to Christ. We discover that in verse number 21. We discover that he was loyal, according to verse number 22, that he had served a long time with Paul in the gospel and had not abandoned him like perhaps others had abandoned him along life's road. So we see some very glowing compliments that are mentioned by Paul specifically about this man that we know of as Timothy. And then we turn our attention to Epaphroditus a little bit later in our text. And we discover in verses 25 through 30, that he was a brother to the Apostle Paul. Uh, that he was more of a, more than just a friend, more than just a partner, but that he was actually a brother, he was part uh, of paul 's family, not in a physical sense, but certainly in a spiritual and in a, in a relational sense that he was a servant. The Bible says in verse number twenty five that he was a fighter, according to verse twenty five he calls him a fellow soldier, not a, not a fighter warring against other men and women, but a fighter warring against the devil and warring against evil, fighting for the souls of men here on this earth we discuss that he was a minister according to verse number 25 and we also discover that he was selfless in verse 26 and in verse number 30. Now from these men we get a pretty good idea don't we of the kind of people that God uses. I don't know about you but as I was studying this text I was um I was overcome with 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 some sense of relief. I was overcome with a sense of relief because we do, not find, we do not find Paul mentioning any special or unique talents or abilities that Timothy or Epaphroditus had. In other words, we, we, don't, we don't know whether either one of these men could, uh, could sing uh, beautifully like we heard our choir and the special music like we heard them sing today. They may, they, may, they may have been able to sing like some of those were able to sing, like some of you were able to sing, or they may have been like me and like some of you others of you. Who, you know, we'll sing in church, but we don't want anybody to hear us, right? We, we like to, you know, we like to find our pew and to hope that nobody sits in front of us because if they do, oh boy, it's, it's not going to be pretty, right? They may, they may have been beautiful singers, but they may not have been. That's not a prerequisite for God using a person. They may, they may have been extremely, extremely intellectual. I mean, high IQs. I mean, men who, who would pick up some of the, uh, some of the most difficult uh, reading and resources that would have been known in that day and to read them as if it's really not that big of a deal. I can understand what is being said here and what is being taught here with just one reading. Uh, that's not me. Uh, I, I sometimes, I'll, I'll even read my own Bible and I'll read uh, several verses. And in my mind, I'll think to myself, I have no idea what he's talking about here. Let me go back and let me read it a little bit more slowly. Let me try to break it down just a little bit. I was telling the earlier service that I, that I picked up a book recently. I've been wanting to read for a while a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I read it. It was, it, was, it was a lengthy book, probably one of the longest books I've ever read in my life. And it took me several weeks to get through it. But as I would read some of the things that he wrote specifically, and I thought to myself, I don't even know what this guy's saying. I mean, he is just, he's writing and operating at a completely different level than I am. And so sometimes I'd read the paragraph and I'm like, okay, dummy, go back and read it again because you have no idea what he just said there. And I'd read it again. I got to tell you, I, I'm not too ashamed to tell you, there were times in which I'd read a paragraph three or four times before I'd even begin to figure out, okay, this is where he's going. And we're not just talking about books they he read, but I'm talking about actual letters that he wrote to friends and that sort of thing. And, and, and here's a man who was a theologian during, the world, during World War II and made a great impact in our world. And I'm just simply saying, listen, you don't have to have that high of an IQ for God to use you. I'm grateful for that. N- neither does it, neither does it, Describe their physical appearance. Was was Timothy an impressive figure to look at? Maybe. Maybe not. When Timothy walked into a room, did did he have a personality that just sort of took over the room and everyone was drawn to him and wanted to be near him? Maybe, maybe not. Same thing for Epaphroditus. We don't know how tall they were. We don't know how much they weighed. We don't know what kind of hairstyle they had. We, we, we're not really given much information on the color of their skin or the tone of their skin or anything like that. We don't know much about their personalities, but what we do discover here indicates, listen, these are the types of people that God uses. Now, you, you may find yourself much like me. You may look in the mirror and you might think to yourself, man, I wish I had this type of hair. Or I wish my eyes were this color. I wish I was this skinny or I wish I was this tall. You may stand in a service and you may sit here and listen to some of our special music in the choir and you might think to yourself, boy, I wish I could sing like that. I wish I had the confidence to stand in front of a group of people and hold a microphone and sing a song like that. You, uh, you, you, you may look around and, and, and see lots of people that are talented and that have unique talents and abilities and sometimes maybe they use those things in the work of the Lord and you might think to yourself, oh, I wish I could do that. Several years ago, I was in a meeting. And a preacher was preaching. Before the preacher got up to preach, the, the, the man that was sort of emceeing the service, he said, he said now, before Brother So-and-So comes to preach, we're going to have him come to the piano. And we're going to have him sit at the piano and to play, and he's going to sing. And I thought to myself, that's just not fair. <laughs> Especially when he, when he sat there and he began to play. I mean, his, his, his fingers were all over that keyboard, and he was playing like you couldn't believe. And as far as I could tell, there was not even any music in front of him. And I thought to myself, well, that's not, then I thought to myself, well, he can play and he can sing, but I bet he's a lousy preacher. Because you can't do both. That just doesn't seem possible. And then he got up and he preached a message like I'd never heard before in my life. And I thought, that's really not fair. I hate that guy. <laughs> Listen, you don't, a, you don't have to be a gifted maestro at the piano. You don't have to be a great preacher of God's word. Here, here, here are some things that we discover in our text. Here's what you must be if you're going to be used by God. There's three things. I want you to see them. Number one, we discover that God uses people who are transformed. God uses people who are transformed. We discover, we discover some things about both of these people, both of these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, that to me exhibit, exhibit clear evidence of life and living that is not consistent, listen, not consistent with the flesh and its natural desires. In verses 19 to 21, Paul writes that he is sending Timothy because, because here's why, because most men, they only care about themselves and their own deeds. And the indication is that Timothy is not like most men. He's saying, he's saying, listen, as I think about people that I could send to you, I wouldn't send him because I'm pretty sure that he'd get there and he'd probably try to take advantage of the situation. I'm not exactly sure that his heart is in the right place. I, I, I don't know that I could trust him here or him there, but he, then he thinks to himself, wait a minute, I know somebody, his name is Timotheus, his name is Timothy, and I'm going to send him to you. Here's why, because most men, they, they, don't, they wouldn't naturally care for your state. Most men, they only care about themselves, and yet Timothy, Timothy, he is more interested in pleasing Jesus Christ and in serving Jesus Christ than he is in pleasing and serving the lusts of his flesh. He is more interested in in, in, in furthering the work of Christ and furthering the work of God than he is in furthering his own self and his own ambitions and his own goals. So again, we see here that Timothy is not like most men. His presence there would ensure that the needs of the Philippians would come first even above his own needs, that he would truly care for them and minister to them as a loving shepherd would. In verses 25 to 26, Paul writes about Epaphroditus that while in an incredibly difficult place physically, he was focused not on his own needs, even though his own needs were great, they were vast, But rather, he was focused on the welfare of others. He was more concerned about Paul and the believers in the church at Philippi than he was about his own needs, even though he had much to worry about and much to be concerned about. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Can I say, listen, that this, both of these men, live in such a way that is as far from the natural state as one can possibly get. Therefore, we are left to conclude that these men, listen, these men have been transformed. They've been transformed by the spirit of God. That God has been at work in their lives. Therefore, therefore Paul, says, Paul says, they're needful for me and they will be a help to you. They're, they're the types of people that God uses. Now, self-love is all the rage in our world today. You hear a lot about it. And I don't mean... I don't mean to offend anyone today when I say some of these things, but I think you do need to hear it. In our world today, there are podcasts totally dedicated to the idea of building your self-esteem and building your self-love. There are, there are books, whole books that have been written. There are whole men that have dedicated their careers to helping people to love themselves more to have a greater sense of self-esteem. There are online videos that you could watch by the hour that would tell you how to love yourself more. There are seminars and workshops devoted to loving oneself. And can I just pause here for just a moment? And can I just help you with something? I can can save you a lot of money in this life. You don't have to buy another self-love book again. You don't have to register for another self-love seminar or workshop ever again. You can can keep that money in your pocket. Here's why. The Bible Bible says you don't have any issues with loving yourself, and neither do I. We love ourselves too much. That's the problem. You will never find the Scripture commanding commanding people to love themselves because you're born with that, and so am I, every last one of us. We're born loving ourselves. And the Bible indicates that. Therefore, that's not something you need to work at. And in fact, in fact, that's something, if you're gonna be used by God, that's something you're gonna be you're going to need to be transformed away from. Here's what, the, here's what the Bible has to say. The Bible says, so long as you and I are fixated with self-love, we're never gonna be used by God. God's people, listen, here's here's who you're commanded to love. You're not commanded to love yourself. You already do that. You are commanded, I am commanded to love God and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Jesus was asked during his earthly ministry in Matthew 22, which is the great commandment in the law? You know what he's saying? He's saying, "What's the? if I don't get anything else, what do I need to get? And Jesus gave the answer. Here it is. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Here it is. As thyself. He's saying, just like you love yourself, you need to love your neighbor. And he says this on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Timothy and Epaphroditus give evidence of gospel transformation by their consistent love for the Lord and their consistent love for others, enabling them, listen, to be mightily used in the work that God was doing among people during this generation. Now, can I pause here for just a moment? Can I say that this is not, this is not a love that you can will yourself into. What I mean by that is, this is not a love that you could talk yourself into. In other words, some of you, some of you say, okay, okay, what God wants me to do is He wants me to love God and He wants me to love my neighbor as much as I love myself. So here's what I'm gonna do. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I'm gonna be determined. I'm gonna tell myself, I'm gonna get up early in the morning and say, You're gonna love your neighbor today. And that'll last about five minutes. Until you get into the office and that coworker of yours takes the last coffee in the whole place and pours it into his cup, doesn't leave anything for you. And when that happens, when that happens, those bitter feelings will rise up in you again, and you'll think to yourself, you lousy jerk. Why did you Why did you take the last, couldn't you have poured yourself half of a cup and left half of a cup for me? And I'm just simply saying, this is not a love that you can will yourself into. You can't talk yourself into this. That, that'll, that'll last a, a few minutes, and you'll find that that love will fade away. Listen, this, this kind of love, loving God and loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself, is a, is a transformation that only God can do in a life. Amen. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 5 and verse number 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How, how, Paul? How is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts? Because we go to church? Oh, I know. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts because we think about it real hard and we, and we self-will ourselves to, to have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. No, no, that's not what the Bible says. Listen to what the Bible says. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. You sort of get the idea, don't you, from that text, that this isn't something that you can manufacture. This isn't something that you can produce. Perhaps some of you have been frustrated because you're not seeing the love of God in your life like you ought to, and you've been wondering, but I've been trying so hard. Therein lies the problem. Quit trying. Quit trying to manufacture this. Quit trying to produce this in your own power and your own strength, and allow the Holy Spirit of God, which is given to you by God, allow him to develop that in your life. In Galatians chapter 5, we discover Paul instructs the church of Galatia. He says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he goes on to say this in verse number 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love. You know what he's saying there? He's saying the fruit that the spirit grows in your life is this kind of love. Therefore, listen, apart from the Holy Spirit doing this, apart from the Holy Spirit producing this in your life, you won't have it. Now, you might have a man, man-made love, but you understand man's love is very fickle, isn't it? One day I love this, the next day I don't. It just depends on how I feel when I wake up each morning, sort of what I determine I'm gonna be passionate about and what I determine I'm going to love. But listen, listen, if you allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in you, if you yield yourself to him, he can transform you so that you are loving the way that he commands you to love. So the people God uses are, people who are transformed, but notice secondly, I think we discover that God uses people who are proven. God uses people who are proven. In verse number 22, he says this, but ye know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now look at, look at verse number 29 and, and consider how, how this is sort of different from, from what he says in verse 22. He says, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Now here's what had happened. As he writes this about Timothy, he says in verse number 22, he's already proven himself. And you know this about him. But he says this about Epaphroditus. He said, he says this, he says, because of what he's done and how he's ministered to me, he has proven himself. Therefore, you ought to receive him and you ought to respect him and you ought to honor him for the way that he ministered to me, the way that he served me during this difficult time that I have undergone. So here's the point. You either, right now, you either are, you either are, or I should say, you either have a reputation as Timothy did that is known to all the saints or, or you're in a period in which you're building a reputation as Epaphroditus was doing and had done in which Paul now felt compelled to commend him to his church home as a man worthy of honor and respect. So as we look around the room here today, and as we did this at 9 30, we saw we saw people that have been a part of this church for 40, 50. Some of you have been here for 60 plus years. My grandmother's sitting in here this morning, and she came on the second Sunday of this church's existence, and she's been here ever since. She's proven herself. Mrs. Thompson, I don't believe she's with us today dealing with some health issues, but Mrs. Thompson was here on the first Sunday that the church was in existence when it was just eight, 10, 11 people meeting in a living room not far from this house. But we would all say, that woman has proven herself. When we think of her, when we think of her, we think good thoughts. Then we look around and we see some folks that are a little bit newer. You haven't been around here long. You're You're just getting in. And there's a lot of you folks that are just coming in. People that are just just walking in the doors, maybe for the first time, or maybe maybe for the first time in a long time. People haven't seen you in a while, and 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 people maybe are wondering. I wonder where they're at spiritually. I wonder where he's at. Can I just say that every last one of us in this room, you're in a position where you have either proven yourself already, or you are working in such a way as to prove yourself as a faithful man, a faithful servant, a faithful woman of God. Can I help you to understand the proving ground for ministry? For ministry use and effectiveness is life and the challenges that life throws our way. I want us to consider these two men and what we know about them and understand that after all that they had been through and what they had endured, the Apostle Paul then says they've proven themselves. Receive them with honor and respect. Why? Because they've endured the trials that have been sent their way. They were faithful in the midst of difficulty and affliction. What do we know about Timothy? Timothy was born to a believing mother who was a Jew. And as far as we know, an unbelieving father who was a Greek. We learn of that in Acts 16 and verse number one. Many believe that Timothy's father was out of the picture from the time that he was a small child. So he grew up in one of two homes. He either grew up in a home in which dad was unsaved and mom was saved, or, or he grew up in a single-parent home, as so many young people do in, in today's society, in today's culture. Regardless of that, we understand that his, his, his upbringing probably was a bit of a challenge. Fortunately, fortunately, Timothy's mother and his grandmother, according to the Scriptures, they were the real deal spiritually. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, and he says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith, don't let that word confuse you. That word just simply means the genuine, the authentic faith. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also Paul says, Paul says to Timothy, he says, listen, I know your faith is genuine, and I know that it lies in you, that genuine faith is in you, because you had a grandmother who had a genuine faith, and you had a mother that had a genuine and a very real faith. And we, and we, would, we would deduce from this that more than likely, Timothy was saved at a young age. For Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus Upon Paul's arrival in Timothy's hometown, already, already he had been identified as a young man with budding potential as a disciple, leading the apostle Paul himself to take Timothy under his wing to mentor and train him for gospel work. The Bible tells us in Acts 16, 1 and 2, then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. So in other words, Paul comes into this region and he begins to meet with people and talk to people that know Christ and they say, you've got to hear about this young man by the name of Timothy. God's got his hand upon him. God's using him in a great way. Therefore, Paul would take him under his wing and mentor him and he'd become a ministry partner. He would be used by God. In order order to travel with Paul, however, and to minister alongside of Paul, Timothy had to agree to the rite of circumcision In Acts 16 and verse number three, the Bible says, him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Paul said, Timothy, I have to talk to you. He said, because my my mode of ministry is when I go to a town, I always go to the Jew first. He says, I go to the synagogues and I try to minister to them. If they find out, if they find out that someone that is traveling with me has not been circumcised, they won't listen to our message. They won't hear what we have to say. Therefore, Timothy, if you're going to travel with me, you're going to have to undergo the rite of circumcision. And you know what Timothy did? He willingly, he willingly did that. Why? Because he just wanted to be used by God. He just wanted to be used to the Lord. Is, is, it, is it necessary to be circumcised in order to be saved? No. Is it necessary to be circumcised in order to stand and preach gospel? No. but Because Timothy understood that this might be a stumbling block in the hearts and lives of those that were listening to him. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to allow that to keep me from being an effective minister of the gospel. Therefore, he was willing to undergo such a thing. Timothy became one of Paul's closest ministry companions, functioning more like a son than a friend or a partner, according to Philippians 2.22. So Timothy, listen, Timothy would be proven... By growing up without a dad. At the very least, growing up with a dad who was lost and a mom who was saved. Timothy would be proven by showing great interest in spiritual things throughout his youth. When his other friends were more interested in things that were fun and enjoyable and, 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 and maybe you know, kicking a ball around and running around, Timothy was more interested in seeking after God and learning spiritual truths. Timothy had developed a stellar reputation among his elders and church family. He had proven himself by his willingness to endure physical pain and suffering for the cause of Christ. He had proven himself by his consistent faithfulness to Paul and the gospel work that Paul was involved in. So Timothy had proven himself. The church at Philippi knew who he was and knew what he had done and knew the kind of testimony that he had. But then we think about Epaphroditus, the second man mentioned in our text we know less about. What we do know, however, is pretty impressive. Paul writes to the Philippian church as a prisoner of Rome, and it is believed it is believed by Bible scholars that there were two stages to Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Upon his initial bondage, Paul was under house arrest for a period of time, but eventually he was placed in a more traditional first century prison. You and I, when we hear that, you need to think like a dungeon would be. More than likely below the ground, carved into the earth, uh, probably no bed to lay on, no pillow for his head, probably not a whole lot of suitable food to enjoy and to eat, probably it was really, really cold at night and maybe really, really hot during the day. And more than likely, there wasn't much natural sunlight, wasn't, wasn't much light at all. And in these types of conditions, that's, the, that's the, what Paul was dealing with as he writes to the church at Philippi. And the Philippian church understands what he's dealing with and they're, and they're, and they're struggling with it. Because Paul has done nothing to deserve this other than to preach the gospel. And they desired to communicate a blessing to Paul during this time of need. And so here's what they did. They selected this man by the name of Epaphroditus. And they said, listen, we're gonna give you some money. We're gonna give you maybe some blankets and maybe some pillows and maybe some things to keep Paul warm at night. And we're gonna give you maybe some food that you can take on your journey so that when you see him, you'll be able to pass these things along to him and be a blessing. And the church of Philippi, listen, they entrusted Epaphroditus with these values, uh, valuable things, with these uh, worthwhile things, understanding that he was gonna take a long journey from philippi all the way to rome so that he could minister to the apostle paul and look what paul says in philippians 4 would you look there in verse number 18 he says but i have all and abound i am full having received having received of epaphroditus the things which were sent from you an odor of a sweet smell a sacrifice acceptable well pleasing to god now if you wanted to give hundred dollars to somebody more than likely, you'd find somebody you trust to take it to them. You probably wouldn't walk up to somebody you've never met and say, hey, listen, can you take this money, this cash, these 20s, can you take this and can you deliver it to such and such a place? Never met the person, don't know their name, don't know who they are. No, no, you, you would, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna communicate some valuables to someone else, more than likely, you're gonna find someone that you can trust, someone who is Proven themselves. So, what the church at Philippi did, they said to Epaphroditus, We think we can trust you. We're going to send you with these goods, with these items. We want to make sure that they get to the Apostle Paul in a timely manner. While they're, while they're ministering to Paul, possibly, listen, think about this, possibly living with Paul in this very prison in order to be close to him and to communicate his desire to serve him, Epaphroditus gets deathly ill. That's what the text indicates. Paul's worried about him according to verse number 27 thinking that if he dies I'm going to have sorrow upon sorrow somehow somehow some way word even trickles back to the church at Philippi I'm not sure how that happened there were no phones cell phones there was no you know email It would have to go the very, very slow route of someone carrying that news from one station to another, but somehow word gets back to the believers in Philippi. Hey, hey, Church of Philippi, you know the man that you sent that that is there to communicate to Paul and to encourage Paul and to minister to Paul? He's very sick. Paul goes far to say he was nigh unto death. And while Epaphroditus was in that state, you read the text, Epaphroditus isn't sitting here saying, woe is me. Oh man, I, I, I went out of my way to serve the Lord and to be a blessing to the servant of the Lord and, and now look at me. Look what's befallen me. I'm probably gonna die here in this prison. I've done nothing to be worthy of even being in prison. I'm just here to try to help somebody. That's not Tim, that wasn't Paphroditus' attitude at all, was it? The Bible says, no, no. The Bible says that he had a heaviness for the believers in Philippi who were so overcome with grief that they were worried sick about him Here is this man and he's sick unto death and he's not worried about his needs and how am I going to recover and what's going to happen to me. No, no, no. All he can think about are the believers back home who are struggling, who have fallen into a funk and into a depression because the man that they have sent is sick and they're so worried about him, leading him to be overcome, not with worry about himself and how he's going to recover, but to be overcome with worry for them. It says in verse 26, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye he had heard that he had been sick, eventually this man by the name of Epaphroditus would fully recover. Some people have believed that Paul healed him. I don't believe that's the case. Paul doesn't seem to indicate that whatsoever. But Paul just seems to indicate the Lord gave him strength and he recovered. And Paul would send him back to Philippi so that they could rejoice in this reunion and celebrate the good work he had done on their behalf. And as he's coming, he says, you receive him with respect. He He is worthy to be respected and to be celebrated in your midst because of the way that he has served me faithfully. Epaphroditus had proved himself on this trip to Rome. He'd left the comforts and conveniences of Philippi behind to join with Paul in his bonds. He had shown uncommon valor in the face of a deathly sickness. He had cared more for Paul and others than he did for himself. And now, now he is commended to them to be received with high esteem and honor in the church. Well, let me just share this as we, as we wrap things up. All of us are either proven to be a faithful servant or being proved currently. Can I say this? That before God blessed and used Abraham, he proved him. Will you leave Ur of the Chaldees and will you follow me? Before, before God made David king, he, before he put him on the battlefield to face Goliath, he proved him as a shepherd defending a sheep. Before God placed unusual power upon Elisha to do the work that God had called him to do, he proved him, will you faithfully follow the man that I've set up as your authority, Elijah the prophet, Can I say this, that if you're going to be faithful, if I'm going to be faithful, if we're going to do what God has called us to do, if we're going to be used by God, then understand this, that what you're facing is not meant to break you, but rather it is given to prove you and whether you'll be faithful under duress so that God can use you in greater ways. Some of you are facing some challenges. You're wondering about some things. And you might even be tempted to think maybe God's not good and maybe God's not faithful. And I just want to reorient your thinking. And I want you to understand that's not what this is about. Here's what God is doing. God is proving you. And if you weather this storm and if you come out on the other side stronger in your faith and stronger in the things that God has sent your way, understand this. Understand that you'll get another portion, a greater portion of God's strength and God's power and maybe even a greater calling the one that you currently have. What I'm saying is stay faithful. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, verses nine and 10, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Can I tell you, this is the exact opposite of the attitude of most Christian believers today. Paul says, I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in distresses and persecutions. I take pleasure in these things. Most of us, most of us are resisting these things with everything that we have in us. Not another trial, not another virus, not another freedom thing that's being stolen away from, not another this, not another that. Hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Maybe God's doing some of these things to prove us, to discern, to discover whether or not we'll be faithful. Maybe God is going to raise us up even stronger after all the things that we've endured over the last several years. Take pleasure in infirmities in distresses. Understand, listen, God maybe is using this to weaken me so that he can be strong in my life, so that he can be strong in our church. Number three, and finally, God uses people who are servants. Verses 22 and 30, we don't have time to say much about this at all, but it's obvious, isn't it, that both of these men served and served faithfully. Paul says about Timothy that he has served with me in the gospel in verse number 22. And in verse 22, 30, he says, because for the work of Christ, he, speaking of Epaphroditus, was nigh to death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's not, saying, he's not criticizing the church of Philippi. He's just simply saying, he, he made up what you weren't able to do. You weren't able to be with me, but he was, and he did it faithfully. God uses people who are servants. A lot of times we like to get caught up with, with titles. Well, I'm this and I'm that. I'm the CEO of this company. I'm the you know, chief financial officer here. I'm a teacher. I'm a principal. I'm an administrator. I'm a pastor. I'm a deacon. I'm a, te- you know, a teacher in the church. Listen, it's really not about that. What, t- what title is most important in the eyes of God? I believe it's the title of servant. That's, that's what his son was. Jesus said, I didn't come to be minister unto, but to minister. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And may God help us. Listen, if you're gonna be used by God, you're gonna have to be transformed. You're you're gonna have to be proven. And number three, you're gonna have to be a servant. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.